and we'll build a great marriage together. The Light, 88.7 FM, WAGP, Buford Hilton Head, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. We're here in our studio, and if you have a question that you'd like to ask us for the next hour, We'll be taking questions people have as it relates to their understanding of Scripture, maybe a personal issue they're facing in their life or ministry and they'd like biblical counsel on. All you need to do is pick up the phone locally. Again, it's 843-525-1859. Or you can reach us at our toll-free number, 877. The call letters WAGP 980. When you call, you can dictate your question, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply uh, uh, go on the air. However you're comfortable, we're happy to receive it. Or you can uh, email us here directly into our studio at TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning to you two, and I hope you all are having a really good day. Well, thank you. Um, I just wanted to know, I've been reading, uh, I do a lot of uh, looking, up, looking up things on the Internet, and I've read a little bit lately uh, about C.S. Lewis believing in purgatory and praying for the dead, and I wanted to know what you think about that, uh, Dr. Brogy. I know a lot of people have, have uh, great respect for him, and I don't know too much about him, but it's just some, something that I've been uh, seeing a little bit of lately as I've been out there on the Internet and uh, I trust you. Uh, I want to ask you about it and let you have set me straight, maybe. <laughs> well, I appreciate the question. It's a good one. Um, I had a course on C.S. Lewis at Boston College taught by Peter Kraft, who's considered, you know, probably the foremost expert on Lewis who's alive. Uh, in either case, um, I have never, ever, ever heard that C.S. Lewis believed in praying for the dead or the doctrine of purgatory. It's certainly in not of any of his writings. I read virtually every book he wrote, uh, except the trilogy, uh, the fictional trilogy. I'm, I'm just not into those. I just didn't have the time for it. But I read about 10 other books in that course by Lewis that still are in my library, um, there was uh, hundreds of articles, however, that he published, probably thousands. And obviously, I've not read all of those, but I've never heard that before. Now, there were some other issues about Lewis that, of course, uh, I read about and heard about and uh, that are well documented as factual. Uh, he made a statement concerning the imprecatory Psalms that was, I think, obviously very inaccurate. Uh, He thought that, well, maybe some of those psalms were not inspired uh, because of their harsh tone. Uh, Obviously, that was a a huge mistake on his part to make a statement like that. Uh, He uh, obviously had a very controversial marriage. Um, Lay all that aside. 
Uh, he was definitely, I think, converted. I don't doubt that. Uh, he was a, r- a religious man. Of course, his classic work is called Mere Christianity, uh, which is kind of a philosophical apologetic on uh, why it is that Jesus is God and why we should embrace him as Lord. And it's in, in many ways, it's a record of his own conversion. Uh, someone who claimed to be at one point an agnostic when he was a professor there at Oxford. Uh, but as he said, he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God as he studied the historical evidences. Uh, one of the things that grabbed his attention was the conversion of the Apostle Paul. How could this man, who was such a Christ hater and dead bent on killing Christianity, how was it that he was converted? And of course, that caused Lewis to ponder some of these issues. Uh, so he's an interesting fella. Um, I don't think, in my judgment, that I would consider him a mature Christian. Uh, I think his uh, a lot of his um, his uh, writings reflect a, 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 a philosophical perspective, but not in interaction with the Word of God. Uh, obviously, I don't think a mature Christian would question the inspiration of the imprecatory Psalm. So he accepted the rest of the Bible. For that matter, of course, there was a time in Luther's life when he uh, questioned the inspiration of the book of James. He called it a right strari epistle, though before his death, he reneged on that and fully embraced it as one of God's books. It was just something he didn't understand, much like Lewis didn't understand some of the imprecatory Psalms and how the Spirit of God through a human author could make such statements, but he did. And it's a reflection of God's holiness, his justice and his righteous anger uh, towards sin. So Lewis is an interesting guy. Uh, Many times I will uh, give his book or have over the last uh, 35, 40 years, mere Christianity for someone who's looking for a more philosophical argument. Of course, um, if you want a more factual uh, apologetic, just dealing with pure facts, less philosophical. Then I would often use uh, Josh McDowell's little short book called Mere Christianity. Very simple read. Both books are very short, easy to read in a short period of time, and can be helpful to the unbeliever who's trying to explore the uh, claims of Christianity. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Tyrone from Bluffton, who is an usher at his church, would like to know what are the duties of an usher? Well, the, uh, the, the term usher, uh, so to speak, is um, not a biblical office. It is certainly a biblical uh, expression of servanthood, and we're all called to be servants. He that would be great among you, let him be the servant of all. In many churches, um, the ushers are distinctly separate in their functions from the deacons, uh, one One common uh, uh, expression of fulfilling the office of deacon is taking uh, the the morning offering. In some churches, the ushers do that. But historically, really interestingly, from the third century on, we find deacons who are overseeing uh, the collection uh, given for the saints. And um, that has seemingly come throughout the centuries and has kind of stuck as one function that deacons often do. I think because that traditionally is often a role that deacons uh, have taken, that it's very important for churches because of people's backgrounds when they walk into a church, especially um, 
new people for the first time and they're trying to assess doctrinally where you are, if you have people who are not qualified, say, to serve in the office of deacon or even women, for that matter, taking up the offering, a, a role that traditionally has been done by deacons, then that might not be the wisest thing. Uh, so you've got a way through that personally, obviously, as a as a local church. Uh, James mentions an usher of sorts um, in his short little epistle where he talks about people who who make distinctions. Uh, someone walks into your assembly and um, they're rich versus a, a poor man. And the usher, though the term never appears, uh, so to speak, the person who is overseeing the seating says you sit here in this crummy seat and you rich man you sit down here in the front and we'll give you a a choice seat Uh, obviously that's a a a lousy usher who's making distinctions on outward appearance something that god warns us never to do Uh, he looks at the heart and so we don't assess people on the basis of uh, race or how much money they have uh, that 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 obviously is very displeasing to the Lord. So you're not going to find a job description is what I'm trying to say for an usher. But wisdom would dictate that as a local church, even if you have people serving as ushers who are not deacons and we do, we have people who are not qualified to be deacons, but serve as elders, uh, but serve as ushers. Um, even there, you want to be very careful because, again, someone comes in from the outside and they see an usher helping you find a seat. And that usher, say, has a poor testimony in the community, doesn't pay his bills on time or whatever it is. And, and unbelievers assess in their mind that this is a crummy church or these are a bunch of hypocrites. So in the selection of ushers, it's very important that there be a certain degree of integrity in their life. They may not be mature enough to serve in the office of deacon, but there needs to be a certain level of integrity because it's a visible upfront kind of position and wisdom would dictate that you would uh, select those ushers, greeters, door openers, however uh, you're going to fill various positions in the church. You you fill them very carefully. Yeah, I'd been trying to remember whether the word usher appeared. Uh, I knew I'd related it to uh, James, too, but mm-hmm. that was the name of a message you gave a number yeah. of years ago, the case of the prejudiced usher. That's right. Yeah. That's right. All right. Larry from Beaufort asks, do you think a person who has once accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, having then been filled with the Spirit, is it then possible for this person to lose his or her salvation? Uh, No, not at all. And again, uh, it's important that we let the scripture interpret the scripture. And there was over 150 affirmations in the New Testament concerning the eternal security of the believer that once we're saved, we're always saved, that you can't lose something that's eternal. Even the tense of the verb in passages like John 6, 47, he that believes has eternal life. Uh, eternal life is defined biblically as knowing the Lord. This is eternal life, Jesus said in John seventeen three, that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom thou hast sent. Now, very often we define eternal life in reference to a place. And certainly when a believer dies today, he goes to the father's house. And that's uh, a place where he continues to experience eternal life. But eternal life is not heaven. Eternal life is a relationship with the living God. And that's why repeatedly you will often find a current present tense expression of eternal life. He that believes has present tense eternal life. 
You can know the Lord. You can have salvation today. And if it's eternal, it's really an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms to say that you can lose it, something that's eternal. In John six thirty seven, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him, referring to the Father, the will of the Father, you could say, who sent me. And this is the will of him, the Father who has sent me. That of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, without exception, who beholds the Son and believes in him, may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. So all, A-double-L, everyone, without exception, who looks and believes, will be raised up in the last day. And Jesus' argument is that I didn't come to do my will, but the Father's will. And the Father's will is without exception that every single one who truly believes will be raised up on the last day. There's no leakage in that promise. So for Jesus not to raise someone up on the last day who, in your question, once believed, would be to disobey the Father's will. A little bit later in John 10, a little bit later in his ministry, as he uh, describes the parable of the good shepherd, he makes a, a very clear statement. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And by the way, following Christ is a fruit of salvation. It's a mark that you're one of his sheep. There's a lot of people who go around today who claim to be Christ's sheep, but they don't follow Christ. And they have a phony conversion. And he says, I give eternal life to them. It's not something we earn. Eternal life is the gift of God. I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. We're both God. So it's not that you hold on to God. God holds on to you because salvation is not predicated on something you earn It's not a um, reward given to the righteous. It's a gift that's given to the guilty, to the person who comes helpless, broken, and trusts in Christ, in Christ alone. Uh, So Jesus is very clear. Now, there are some passages in the New Testament that at first glance seemingly seem to indicate that you could lose salvation. Uh, You can't lose something that is eternal. And there are many ways in which the Bible affirms the eternal security of the believer. Not only are there direct statements like we just read by Christ himself, but there are statements like um, Ephesians 1, in him, in Christ, you also having heard the message of truth, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So when you hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, you're sealed with the Spirit of God, who's given, the Bible says, as our pledge, as our down payment, as our earnest, depending on your translation. He is God's guarantee that what God began, God will finish. And of course, Ephesians 4.30 says we're sealed in him until the day of redemption. So it's a seal that is unbroken. It's a securing seal. It's a authenticating seal. It is, in essence, a promised seal that what God began, he will, con- he will complete. Nothing, Paul will argue, can separate us from the love of God who's in Christ Jesus. For whom he foreknew, he says, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. In God's economy, positionally, we're already glorified. Now, experientially, I'm waiting 
for um, my reality in this life to catch up with what God has said is already true of me positionally. But uh, it is an unbroken chain of events here from eternity past to eternity future. Uh, It is certainly true that there are people who come into the church who appear to be saved. They confess Jesus. They receive the word, as Jesus said in the parable of the sower, with joy. But it's only an emotional experience. It's not genuine salvation. Why do we know that? Because they don't persevere. In times of trial and temptation, Jesus said they end up falling away. This is very similar to what we read in First John 2, children, it's the last hour, just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have arisen. From this, we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, these who were against Christ, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. John is saying if they were really, truly, genuinely converted, they would have persevered. Similar statement made by Christ in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. The one who perseveres to the end shall be saved. There, of course, he's dealing with tribulation saints who refuse to bend in light of the persecution. And, of course, the revelation describes that tens of millions, apparently, like the sand of the seashore, are beheaded during the Great Tribulation because they refuse to say that Jesus is not Lord. They refuse to follow this one who comes in the place of Christ, the Antichrist. You're not saved by perseverance, but Jesus's point, as John's point in 1 John 2, is that if we're saved, we will persevere. It's a fruit of salvation. It's not the means to salvation. Uh, let me look at one final verse in Second Peter 3. I've just turned there. It says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard lest you be carried away by unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Uh, he's dealing here with uh, people who are uh, not true to the scriptures. They distort the scriptures to their own destruction. And Peter warns us that we not fall from our steadfastness. You can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your steadfastness. Uh, your ability to walk consistently with the Lord because you've chosen to expose yourself to false teaching. This is one of the reasons I'm warning God's people about Perry Noble, because many foolish, ignorant, uninformed Christians are endorsing his ministry. But he's a false teacher, and he's coming to Hilton Head, and I fear that thousands of Christians in Hilton Head, in their folly and in their lack of grounding, will just flock to that church when it opens. And those Christians, if they're truly saved, will not lose their salvation, but they can lose their steadfastness. And I've witnessed that many, many times with people who've been a part of that church. It's, it's not of the Lord. Um, so our salvation is secure in Christ. Uh, our relationship with God is eternal, but our fellowship is moment by moment. But to get back to your final illustration, someone who totally renounces the faith, he was just never really saved to begin with. Because if you have it, you can't lose it. If you lost it, you never really had it to begin with. Uh, This caller might want to go online uh, at searchthescriptures.org, click on the Back to Basics series, and listen to the first lesson in that series, um, which we actually, it's the first uh, handout dealing with the eternal security of the believer that we cover in three Uh, sessions. And I think that would be very helpful because we walk through all the verses in the Bible uh, that people often use to say you can lose your salvation. 
And I think uh, you'll you'll really be able to respond intelligently and scripturally uh, to this issue that's been raised in your life. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 20 minutes after the hour, we've got another live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Uh, I was studying this morning in Mark at, uh, about the sower, and Jesus was talking to the crowd in parables. Yes. And uh, when he gets off alone with his followers and his disciples, they ask him about this. And he talks to them about um, how it was given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And um, he talks about those who have ears to hear, let him hear previously. But then he says something that, and I know that it is God's will that none should perish, and God would never withhold salvation from those who truly seek it. But it says, um, let's see, and they seem they may that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Right. Every time I read that, I know God's character, but, but I'm always a little foggy on that. Well, it's a what good question. Mean? So um, in Mark 4, of course, where you find the parable of the sower, it's found in all three synoptic gospels. What's most helpful is to understand chronologically where this particular parable is told. And if you uh, look at Matthew's gospel, where we have a fuller account of the parable, it comes right after Matthew chapter 11. So the key to understanding uh, Matthew chapter uh, 12 and 13 is understanding Matthew chapters 11 and 12. In chapter 11, at this point in Christ's ministry, you have the unrepentant cities there in the... uh, Galilee region, you know, Chariza, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and so forth, who uh, the Lord said, look, if these miracles were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But he still, even in that context, is inviting people to come to him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then you come into the 12th chapter, and you have... um, this group of people who are trying to trap Christ, these Pharisees and ask him a number of questions on the Sabbath and what's permissible and what's not. And then the Lord Jesus does a triple miracle, a demon possessed man who's blind and dumb and he healed them and they get all bent out of shape because they consider it as work on the Sabbath. And they go so far to say that the power that Jesus was operating out of was not the spirit of God, but the power of the devil himself, Beelzebul. And so Jesus warns them of the unpardonable sin. And so this is like a turning point in the ministry of Christ when you come to Matthew chapter 12, because at this point, the Jewish leaders officially reject Jesus as Messiah. And so we read that it's from this point on that his focus is largely parabolic to the multitudes and to the disciples who are true followers. Because this is when you come to Matthew 13, you're coming now towards the end of Christ's ministry. Uh, What people don't often put together in the uh, chronology of the uh, Gospels is uh, where where are we in that three-year period? For instance, when you come to John chapter 11 and the raising of uh, Lazarus from the dead, you're about uh, 12 to 13 days before the crucifixion. 
So John 11, all the way through. And when you come to Matthew 13, you're coming towards the end of the ministry of Christ. And it's really interesting in that uh, in, in each of the Gospels, the largest portions are dedicated to the last couple of weeks of Christ's life and most of it to the very last week of Christ's life. And that's important because that's the final examination of the Passover lamb, just as they would bring in the lambs into Bethlehem on what we call Palm Sunday, that Sunday prior to Passover, where they would examine them during that week. Christ makes a triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what we call, again, Palm Sunday, and his life is scrutinized greatly in that last week. But when you come to Matthew 13, you're nearing the end of his ministry, And so he begins to teach in parables on the kingdom of God. And of course, the primary parable that you've raised here is the parable of the sower. And it's a principle that is important because um, there are people who have revelation, but don't respond to the revelation. And that revelation brings judgment from God Um, in John 12, which would be a a parallel time frame in which these events take place, um, we read this. We just read in Matthew about the miracles that were being done. And, and Jesus said, if you know they had accomplished these things in Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they never would have pursued their sin. They would have repented. And so it would be more tolerable for the people of Sodom and the final judgment of God than it will be for those cities. And of course, here in John chapter 12, Jesus makes an interesting statement he, he says, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. So again, the Lord is appealing uh, to people to respond to the revelation seen in the miracles, which were confirmation that he was Messiah. These things Jesus spoke and departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs or miracles before them, yet they were not believing in him that the word of Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled in a parallel text here to what you just referenced from uh, the Mark account, um, that the word of Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for this cause? They could not believe for what cause? because they had seen this revelation of miracles, yet they would not believe. And so because they would not believe, he says in verse 39 of John 12, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he, God, has blinded their eyes. He, God, has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. And so there is the patience of God, which is great. It is long-suffering. But the greater the revelation, the more the responsibility to whom much is given, much is expected. And so understand the parable of the sower in Mark 4 in its chronology comes right after uh, the final thrust of miracles in the Galilean region. And then this triple miracle in Matthew 12, where at that point, the Pharisees commit an unforgivable sin. He said, blasphemy against the Father and against the Son can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin. So they had rejected the testimony of the Father. They had rejected the testimony of the Son. And the only final testimony that was left was the testimony of the Spirit. And they said what he was doing, Christ, was not done by the Spirit, by, by the devil himself. 
And so there is a switch now, the kingdom that Christ had offered to the Jews that was now formally rejected. He goes on and he tells all those kingdom parables and included in it, of course, is the parable of the sower. And he's really describing what will happen between the first and second comings of Christ, what we call today the church age and how will God build his church. But it's a reminder to us all that there is an urgency that people need to heed, uh, that what we will see in a wholesale way during the great tribulation, uh, God will send a deluding influence on people because they did not love the truth of the gospel so as to be saved. And so there's a connection between God's judgment on people who had heard the plan of salvation and power and clarity before the rapture that will fall on them because of their lack of response. And that's really what we are reminded of in Mark 4 as well as in Matthew 13. Great question. Let's go to the next one. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at net. as has Marty from Savannah who would like to know what you think of Tim Keller and asks the question, have you heard some of the things he's been saying about evolution being used to create the world along with God? And in one white paper, Keller essentially says the primary purpose of salvation is cultural renewal to make this world a better place. You know, I get all kinds of heat, Marty from Savannah, whoever you are, when about, you know, eight, nine years ago, uh, some people in our church wanted to use an apologetics book written by him. And I said, no, we're not going to use it. Oh, but he's great. You know, da, 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 da. I said, no, he's teaching in this book, theistic evolution. Uh, theistic evolution, theos is the word for God, basically says that God used the process of evolution in which to create the world. That is a plain, flat out denial of what God has revealed in his word. God did not use the process of evolution. He used uh, his spoken word in, in six days, God created the heavens and the earth, not in millennia of time, not in billions and billions of years. The process of evolution puts death prior to the fall. It's a direct contradiction of what God has said in his word. And so you have millions of years of death and death and death and death and death. And eventually man pops out, you know, through that process. That's not what God reveals. He reveals the fact that death enters into the world through sin. So when you uh, try to buddy up to science in order to, uh, you know, be likable, uh, listen, they may have the, the latest word, but they don't have the last word. God has the last word. And there are many Christians who foolishly, even the Pope himself came out, Pope Francis saying that it was compatible for God to have created the world through evolution. No, that, that is wrong. That's the spirit of Antichrist that's at work. That's antithetical. If you can't believe Genesis 1-1, which is basically what uh, evolution is saying, if you can't believe the opening chapters of Genesis, then you can't really trust the rest of the Bible. So his uh, so-called apologetics books undermined the a central apologetic, and that is the hist- historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. So no, I would not use his book. And now we're really seeing what kind of teacher he is, aren't we? And it's coming out. And again, it takes time. So when I attack a Perry Noble, 
there's going to be people all over their Facebook pages saying that I'm a hateful person and I'm this and I'm that. But when Perry Noble crashes, they'll say, oh, woo, woo, woo. maybe Pastor Carl was right. And uh, but people in our day, because they are so worldly, so many Christians are so worldly, they lack basic discernment. And that's the problem. And God tells us that discernment comes through a knowledge of Scripture that is practiced through obedience to the word of God. And you lose your ability to discern, to see clearly truth from error when you uh, fill your mind with the trash of the world, when you entertain yourself on it and all these other things that Christians across our nation is doing that is causing them to to lose their edge for God, their ability to be real salt and light. Anyway, let's go to the next question. It's a good question, Marty from Savannah. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, this is Larry Keaton. I, I would like to ask uh, Brother, Brother Carl if, uh, if he could expound somewhat on the difference between committing murder and taking a life in self-defense or in combat or something of that nature fighting for your country? Yeah, it's a great question. I really appreciate it. And some of the confusion has come over uh, the um, older translation of the Bible, where you read, for instance, in Exodus chapter 20, God says, you shall not murder. In the old King James, it says, you shall not kill. And so some pacifists have, from these scripture, concluded that, oh, well, you know, any killing is uh, forbidden by God uh, as it relates to human blood. Uh, Unfortunately, um, you know, people don't let the scripture interpret itself. Now, in the newer translations, we don't write, you shall not kill. We write, you shall not murder. And that all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. Now, it is true in Hebrew, there is one word for um, killing and murder. And the context would determine uh, what's in view, what's in sight. And so if you just go on and you start reading the next couple of chapters following the Decalogue, you discover where God says um, certain kinds of uh, um, taking of life is uh, is permissible and then, you know, judgments for it. So God, God talks about murder. Uh, and so the, in the Hebrew mind, you talk to any Jew today and they'll, they'll recognize that the term must be defined in its context. So again, it's like English. When I use the word trunk, do I mean what's at the base of a tree? Do I mean what's at the back of the car? Do I mean what's in front of an elephant? Do I mean what's over a, uh, a sailor's shoulder? Well, context determines what I mean by the word trunk. And so the word kill, which is the same word for murder in Hebrew, is determined by the context. So the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so if I come up with an interpretation of Scripture that just plainly uh, goes against what God has revealed in other passages, then I've obviously misunderstood it. And so the pacifist movement has always been a minority movement amongst those who are born again who have advocated it. Why? Because um, it's so clear in Scripture that there are times when a human life can be taken. God says in Genesis 9, right after the uh, great flood is over and they're in a new world and 
God begins to give some new dictates in reference to um, the law of man as it relates to the creation around him, things he can now eat that he was not uh, permitted to eat before. And then God says this, um, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for the image of God. He made him. So God plainly says in the noadic covenant that there is a time when a person's blood can be shed. Again, Moses is very clear in the giving of the law when that is permissible, when it is not. Uh, when a manslaughter takes place, there was an opportunity for a person to flee to one of the special cities that God had uh, given for people who were guilty of manslaughter so that their life could be protected. But when there was premeditated murder with clear witnesses, and it's unfortunate that sometimes people are executed in our day by the government when there is not real clear witnesses and not clear testimony, but when it's premeditated and there's clear witness to that premeditation, then God gives permission, not of the individual, but of the government to bear the sword. And so what this caller might want to do is go and listen to my sermon on Romans 13. And a lot of you may not be aware that we now have a phone app through searchthescriptures.org. And if you go to the app store, you can download it and you can listen to a lot of these messages that are available, you know, just on your phone and uh, when you're driving to work or wherever. And so I go through all these passages uh, from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, where God gives permission in certain instances for life to be taken. Uh, God, when he speaks of the government, he says that it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not, be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it, the government is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So God is really clear that he has given permission for the government to bear the sword. Why? Because of evil, because of the fallenness of man. Who would want to live in a city where there are no police? We're seeing the riots in Baltimore. And, um, you know, we need to pray for our police. Yeah, there are some bad cops. There's always been bad cops, but they make up less than 1% of 1% of the police officers in our nation. And, of course, what we're seeing more and more in our nation is anarchy. When the family breaks down, the culture breaks down. And when the culture breaks down, there's going to be a stronger arm in the government's expression of evil. And it's unfortunate, you know, sometimes when people are mistreated, and that is a heartache and a heartbreak to the heart of God himself. But who wants to live in a city where there are no police? No one does. No one does. Why? Because hell will have a holiday. And really, I, an army is just kind of an extended police force. Uh, the army in New York City of police officers is as large as many armies that entire nations have in dealing with the millions of people who live in that city. So there is a biblical role for the military. There are pacifists who say, well, I, I, can't, I can't do that. Well, aren't you glad somebody is willing to do it? Because we wouldn't know the freedom that we would know. There were people who would just run over us as a, as a people, as a nation, 
because of the evil intents of people's hearts. So um, listen to my sermon on Matthew, on um, excuse me, Romans chapter 13, and I'll take you through all the verses in the Old and the New Testament that deal with uh, the government's right to kill and your right to kill when your life is personally threatened. When someone breaks into your house and you discern that their intent is to hurt you, then you have a right, as I deal with in that sermon, to protect your own life. Somebody asked me, what if ISIS shows up here in the United States? Well, they're already here. The FBI has uh, said they're in all 50 states right now. What if they're coming up your driveway to to harm your wife and your kids? Shoot them. Uh, Kill them. Uh, You have a biblical right to do that. And again, I'll walk through that. Now, there are times when people have uh, a legal right, but not a biblical right. And so we saw that fella in Texas uh, seven or eight years ago who uh, shot is um, someone trying to break into his neighbor's house, two men in the back. He did what was wrong. He did what was evil. He was legally permitted under Texas law to do it. And so the jury found him not guilty. But under God's law, he wasn't because his life was not threatened. And it didn't matter what Sean Hannity and Fox News and everybody else said you know, that he had a right. He didn't have a right, not in God's eyes, not in God's morality. So there is a time when it is wrong to take a human life and there's a time when it's okay. So listen to that sermon because I go into great detail on it. Listen to the first two sermons actually in Romans 13, because I covered in both sermons and I cover some passages in one that I don't cover in the other. All right. Very good. Thank you so much, caller. Our next listener would like to know, um, what it means to turn anyone over to Satan, and does that have anything to do with church discipline? Well, it does. Um, Let me just turn to the text that this person who's just called and dictated this question in. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It says it's actually reported that there is immorality. The word reported is the Greek word ekuatai. You could translated or paraphrased it, it's broadcast. In other words, it's a well-known fact in the Corinthian church that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. And here he's using the term Gentile as synonymous with a pagan, not just a non-Jew, though obviously most uh, Gentiles, non-Jews were pagans. But when Jesus says, don't pray like the Gentiles, he's using the term synonymously with a pagan. He says, in other words, there's some sexual immorality that's going on in your church that even the Gentiles find disgusting, namely that one has his father's wife. You have a man in your church who's sleeping with his stepmother and you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I am my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus. When you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So um, Paul is exhorting the church to clean out the old leaven that you might be a new lump. In other words, there are certain sins of a public nature that harm the testimony of a church. So if a brother or sister in your local assembly, say, falls into adultery, that is the kind of sin that warrants public discipline. If it gets to that, if your brother sins, you reprove him in private. If he doesn't listen, you take two or three. If he then doesn't listen, you take it to the church. 
So there are sins of a public nature that bring a public rebuke because the testimony of the church becomes meaningless if they allow sin to uh, continue. And of course, we're seeing many expressions of this in our day by so-called evangelicals, but especially by mainline denominations that are advocating, you know, homosexual marriage. Uh, that, that, that is maybe something that, the, that uh, certain unbelievers will love because uh, they have been given over to a depraved mind. But then there will be other unbelievers who will say, look, you're sending mixed messages. I, I don't understand what you're saying. And uh, the church sends a mixed message when they allow sin to have freedom of expression in the local assembly. And so when church discipline is exercised, someone is removed from the protective umbrella of the local assembly. In other words, the devil is given permission to, in a different way, uh, harm this person. Uh, He can attack this person. The devil cannot do anything except by the sovereign permission of Almighty God. You see that illustrated in Job 1, when the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, come into the presence of God with Satan, wanting to wage war against Job. So it's only done by permission, but God gives permission when someone is removed from the fellowship of the believers. It's one way in which God can express his discipline. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And if you're without discipline, you're illegitimate. And so if someone is removed from the fellowship of the the local assembly and there's no discipline, it was just an indicator that he was never really saved to begin with because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. But if someone is removed, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.30, for this reason, because there was sin in the church, God brought his discipline. Some are weak, some are asleep, some are dead. Uh, And it appears from 2 Corinthians that this man repented and got right with the Lord. But this is something the Corinthians should have done themselves without Paul having to do it, expressing apostolic authority where he could even do it in spirit. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All righty, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net, as has Sue from Buford, who would like to know, Will those who are saved during the tribulation go through the Bema with those who are already in heaven? It's a good question. And uh, in terms of the timing of the Bema seat of Christ, um, and I am going to be addressing this in the months ahead with some new books of the Bible that I'll be teaching. But let me just say momentarily here that I take it that the tribulation period, as it wages and unfolds here on the earth, that during that same time frame, the Bema seat of Christ will unfold in heaven. And so God comes back with his saints, first for his saints, then he comes back with his saints, and they bring uh, with them given rewards in one aspect of the rewards is the responsibilities that we have during the millennial reign of Messiah. So it appears that the church is, are those who uh, face the, the Bema, which is uh, taking place during the same time frame that the great tribulation is unfolding on the earth. The Bible is silent as to tribulation saints and the judgment or reward that they will receive in terms of um, uh, it being a part of the Bema. 
though it appears that there is a reward that they also receive for their faithfulness is brought out in the Olivet Discourse when uh, Jesus tells the parable, look, when I was naked, when I was in prison, well, when do we do those things? Well, you know, whatever you do, the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. And of course, he's dealing in that parable with uh, those who treat God's people righteously during the great tribulation. He's dealing with the way tribulation saints deal with other saints and their willingness to identify with Christ, even if that will mean their own life. And of course it will, because any open expression of Christianity during the, during the great tribulation period will for many bring uh, beheading and other means of uh, persecution. All right. Very good. We've got about uh, hmm, six and a half minutes or so left. And, uh, our next listener says, some say that Matthew 27, verse 5, and Acts one eighteen are in contradiction to each other. Of course, um, that would mean a contradiction in Scripture. They seem to give different accounts of how Judas Iscariot died. What is your opinion? Do you have any books you'd recommend on how to show that Scripture has no contradictions? Well, I have a whole course that I taught on bibliology, and there are seven sections to the course and one of the sections deals with alleged contradictions in the Bible. And so I go through all the major passages that uh, unbelieving men and women like to use to say that the Bible is filled with mistakes and filled with error. And of course, uh, I deal with this among about 50 others. Uh, so that's where I would direct you would be to the course that is offered at searchthescriptures.org. It's part of our Institute of Biblical Studies there are many people who are working on a 33-hour degree that we offer uh, through um, Search the Scriptures. And there's about 400 pages of notes that go with that course. But you can, again, listen online, get the Search the Scriptures app and download it into your phone and listen to all the different passages I deal with. We're told in Matthew's account, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, which, by the way, is a good reminder of what real repentance is. You can have confession of sin without repentance. You can have remorse without repentance. Here's a man who feels remorse, but he never repents and turns to Christ. Uh, He could have. He could have betrayed Christ and then And then he could have fallen on his face and said, oh, Lord Jesus, what have I done? You know, I betrayed you to the point of crucifixion. I'm so sorry. Forgive me of my sin. I I, I believe in you as Messiah. And he would have went to heaven, but he didn't. He chose to reject Christ for a sum of money. He said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed And he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. It's blood money, so to speak. And they counseled together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. 
Now, in the Acts account, it is a little different. And by the way, this is a favorite passage that Mormon missionaries love to use when they show up at your house, when you um, challenge them and put them up against the wall and you begin to show them differences between the Book of Mormon and the Bible, their final comeback is, well, the Bible can't be trusted because it's filled with error. And those missionaries, young men, 18 years old, and women, are trained by using a number of passages, and this is one of their favorites. Well, we're told in Acts 1, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons, was there to gather and they said, brethren, the scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion of this ministry. Now this man's acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open into the middle of the field and his bowels gushed out. So there are two issues going on here. One is, of course, Matthew says he hung himself. And when Peter recounts the, the event, He says, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of the field and all his bowels gushed out. Well, he did hang himself. These passages do not contradict. They only complement each other. Either the knot slipped or at some point or the rope broke at some point or the branch snapped at some point. And of course, we know where this all took place. It took place on the edge of that great precipice of what we call the Valley of Hinnon. And if you've been to Israel, you can see it's an awful place. It was much deeper in the day of Christ, though it's still a deep cavern to this day. But over the years, because it was a garbage dump, it filled up. And of course, it appears that these accounts really demand each other. Because if he hung himself, one of the tragedies of hanging is it creates a bloating of the body. And when the branch broke or the knot slipped or the rope broke, He would have fallen headlong, and to this day you can see the sharp rock structures that are there in the Valley of Hinnon, and he popped open. Peter is not contradicting Matthew. He's just filling in the juicy details. Uh, There was a man in 1850 who wrote a book. His name was Louis Gasson, and he wrote a book uh, on the inspiration of Scripture. And he tells of a man who jumps out of a window with a gun to his head. So how did you describe the man's death? Did he shoot himself in the head or did he uh, die by uh, jumping out the window? Well, both. And both really is a description of what took place. The second issue is with the field. One account says the priest bought it. The other says this man acquired it. Well, he did acquire it with the price of his own blood and guilt. He, He didn't literally buy it and that he was already dead. When I say I built my own house in Seabrook, I didn't get out there with my hands, but I I contracted a man and designed the home and said, this is what I want you to build for me. Um, And so he's using a figure of speech. Uh, Go to searchthescriptures.org, listen to the lessons on bibliology, and I think that will be of help. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great day as you walk with Christ.